This is The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Joni Grieve, stepping in for Jonathan Friedland. It's been a few weeks since we first spoke on this podcast about what was happening on the Ukrainian border. Since then, very little has physically changed, and yet a lot has happened. As the suggested invasion date came and passed earlier this week, the Kremlin has insisted that the threat of war is nothing but hysteria from the West. Russia has also said it is removing troops from the border in an effort to de-escalate the situation. But NATO leaders aren't convinced, and reports on Thursday of shelling attacks, including one which targeted a kindergarten in Ukraine, have them worried that Russia could use these attacks as an excuse to invade. President Biden has told reporters that he thinks Moscow will move in the next several days. Biden has been a strong voice in the attempted peace talks, speaking to the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, last weekend, and speaking directly to Americans and Russians in speeches during the week. But how do those in his own party feel he has handled the situation? I spoke to Congressman Tom Malinowski, who represents New Jersey's 7th District. He traveled to Ukraine at the beginning of February. So I started by asking him why he felt the need to go. I went to uh, Ukraine a couple of weeks ago with a bipartisan group of members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats. We wanted to demonstrate that uh, for all our divisions in the United States, we were united in support of Ukraine in opposition to the threatened Russian aggression and to uh, see what more we could do when we got home to, to help the Ukrainian government and people survive this crisis. And the situation has obviously moved on quite a bit since your trip. We've now passed the suggested date for when the Russians might be planning to invade. But tell us, what did you come back to the U.S. thinking after that trip? And what was the situation on the ground like in Ukraine? The situation was as tense as you would imagine. People were bracing for impact. They were not certain that the Putin was in fact planning a military invasion. Ukrainians have been living with different forms of aggression from Russia now for many years, including troops in uh, Eastern Ukraine occupying the parts that were taken by the Russians in 2014. So they weren't quite sure what to make of it, but ready, I think, for anything. We came back with just a renewed sense of determination for the United States to to help. And have you been able to share some of that insight with President Biden? Have you spoken to him since coming back from Ukraine? I've spoken uh, with senior State Department and White House officials uh, about the, the trip several times. Some of us are going again this weekend to the Munich Security Conference, which is the biggest gathering of transatlantic allies, the United States and Europe, uh, very well-timed this year. A very important part of our message is that the United States and our NATO allies, members of the European Union, have to stick together here. Russia loves to exploit any sign of disunity between us. And, and I think, fortunately, we've done a pretty good job mobilizing that kind of unity. And right now, we're kind of in this odd moment of have they or haven't they as NATO leaders try to determine if Russia has actually pulled troops from the Ukrainian border, as the Kremlin has claimed. The Russian defense minister reported today that some military units are leaving their positions near Ukraine. That would be good, but we have not yet verified that. 
What do you think would help dispel Western leaders' skepticism about that claim? If they actually pulled the tanks back to Moscow, it's very simple. We can see what they're doing. We've seen them amass this invasion force. It's most of their land army over the last several weeks. They have everything in place that they would need pretty much to launch an invasion, including fuel trucks and medical units and blood banks. We need to see that stuff, you know, not pulling back a mile or two, but going back to its uh, normal configurations away from the border. We haven't seen that yet, so we'll see. But there has been a change of Russian rhetoric in the last few days, which leaves me feeling a bit more hopeful than, uh, than I was a couple of weeks ago. Some Western countries have uh, moved their embassies out of the capital of Kiev. The U.S., for example, closed their embassy there and temporarily relocated the small number of remaining diplomatic personnel to uh, Lviv. And the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has somewhat rebuked Western leaders for that move. The feeling you get from the media is that we have a war, we have troops on the roads, we have mobilization, people are going somewhere. That is not the case. He has urged calm, saying, quote, right now, the people's biggest enemy is panic. So what do you think of that decision to move embassy personnel? Well, I I feel for Zelensky in this case. Uh, He doesn't want Putin to win a cheap victory by tanking the Ukrainian economy and destabilizing the country without even moving a single tank across the border. That's what he means when he says the panic is our biggest enemy. You know, there are Ukrainians pulling their money out of their banks. There are, of course, foreign investors are, are not exactly rushing to Ukraine right now to sign deals. And so the more, from his point of view, the more the United States spreads the word that the war is about to happen, the more Putin is able to hurt Ukraine without even firing a shot. That said, he's got a gun cocked and loaded pointed at Ukraine's head, and and you can't just ignore that, and you have to be prepared. And that's what the Biden administration has been has been saying. Personally, I, I wish we could find a way to keep a diplomatic presence in Kiev ever since the Benghazi attacks. We are coming on the air because we have just learned that the U.S. ambassador to Libya has been killed. It happened overnight. When angry militants stormed the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya, they fired shots, set the building on fire. Almost and the congressional investigation into that, the State Department has been uh, extremely risk averse. I understand why that is the case. Most of the American diplomats I know would like us to move away from that that highly risk averse posture. And I think this would have been a, a good opportunity to, to try to do that. There have been some accusations that Western leaders, including Biden, are contributing to the panic around the potential for war. If Russia attacks Ukraine, it'll be met with overwhelming international condemnation. The world will not forget that Russia chose needless death and destruction. Putin has actually also accused leaders of this, claiming that the more than 100,000 Russian troops amassed at the border are therefore a military training exercise that has been widely discredited by Western intelligence agencies. But do you worry that the U.S. and its allies have contributed to this increased level of panic? Yeah, Putin's like a guy who walks up to you on the street, pulls out a gun, puts it to your head, demands your wallet, and then says, what are you afraid of? I mean, why are you so panicky? He may never have intended to invade. It is true. This may all be intimidation, but you can't help but respond to 
what he's done. And I think the Biden administration, there are trade-offs here, but I think they've been very smart in trying to highlight uh, these Russian steps in publicizing intelligence. Every time they do that, I, I actually think it puts Putin in a much more difficult position. And if he comes out of this saying, oh, it was just America's hype, it was American hysteria all along, I never intended to invade, that's fine. Because then the invasion will not have happened and people will not have been killed and the borders of Europe will not have been changed by military force. On Tuesday, President Biden actually spoke directly to the Russian people. He said, we're not targeting people of Russia. We do not seek to destabilize Russia. To the citizens of Russia, you are not our enemy. And I do not believe you want a bloody, destructive war against Ukraine. Why did Biden choose to address Russian citizens? I think it is important in these situations for the United States to be clear that we are not against the country. We are not against the nation. We're not against the people. We've got to be relentlessly messaging to the Russian people that what we're against is a war that none of them want either, and that you know we're no longer going to be enablers. And when my colleagues spoke about the Ukraine crisis a few weeks ago, it really seemed like President Biden was not going to send troops to the Ukrainian border. But shortly after we talked about it, he actually did then announce that the U.S. would be sending a few thousand troops to uh, allied countries like Poland and Romania. The move was obviously meant to help bolster NATO allies in Europe in the face of this Russian troop buildup. So can you talk about, broadly speaking, how important is NATO to Biden's foreign policy? NATO is important to the United States. NATO is the most successful military alliance in history. It's successful because it prevents war. No NATO country in Europe has ever been attacked since the creation of NATO after centuries in which European nations fought each other, drawing America twice into world wars that claimed hundreds of thousands of American lives. And it's no wonder that countries in Europe that are not members of NATO want to be in NATO because NATO provides that kind of security, that kind of reassurance. Ukraine is not a member, so we do not have a legal commitment to send Americans to fight to defend it. And in fact, when uh, we met with President Zelensky a couple of weeks ago, the first thing he said to us was, we are not asking you guys to come and fight for us. We're just asking your help so that we can fight for ourselves. But even as we help Ukraine in that way, by providing military aid, threatening sanctions, it's uh, right for Biden to shore up our defense of NATO allies like Poland and Lithuania, Romania, that border on Ukraine, and, and to send a message to Putin that if he doesn't like NATO troops close to his borders, he's going to get a heck of a lot more of them if he attacks Ukraine than if he pulls back. The original sticking point for Russia on Ukraine was that the Kremlin really wants to eliminate the option altogether for the Ukraine to join NATO at some point in the future. So if Ukraine announced that it was eliminating that option of joining NATO, how do you think the White House would respond? So our policy for many years has been that any nation in Europe can apply to be a member of NATO. We have an open door. We're not encouraging them to do so. We're not discouraging them. It is entirely up to them. But I'll, I'll tell you this, Ukraine already did once say essentially that it was not going to join NATO. And in 2010, the Ukrainian parliament passed a resolution saying, you know, we're not going to join any military alliance. We're going to be basically a neutral country. 
and Russia still invaded them four years later. So th this has nothing to do with NATO membership. That's, that's what Putin wants us to believe. This is about his fear of Ukrainian democracy, his fear of the example that Ukrainians are setting for Russians when they freely elect their leaders, when they fight corruption, when they join Western institutions, not just NATO, but the European Union, which in some ways is more important here. He wants to crush the example that Ukraine is setting. And even beyond that, I think he has this dream of reconstituting the old Soviet Union. So Ukraine can do what it wants with respect to NATO membership, but personally, I don't think that will make the slightest bit of difference to Russia's calculations. There have been some comparisons made between how Biden has handled the crisis in Ukraine and how the president handled the situation in Afghanistan. I refuse to continue the war that was no longer in the service of the vital national interests of our people. Some of the president's critics have suggested he is showing more force against Vladimir Putin than he did with the Taliban. How do you respond to that criticism? President Biden would argue that they're very different situations, that Afghanistan was a long war that he and many Americans wanted to see end. And the situation in Ukraine involves enduring commitments that we have to European security, to the defense of our allies, a long-standing American policy of opposing this kind of aggression. So I think, I think President Biden would say they're very different, but I do think that the world has expectations about American leadership and the way in which we handled Afghanistan and the decision to to simply leave it, given the, the likelihood that the Taliban was going to win the war as a result of that decision. I, I don't think it was seen by the world as a, a great demonstration of American staying power and strength. That to me is the, the key commonality here. Do you think that Biden has changed tax after seeing the response to his handling of the Afghanistan withdrawal? I don't know if it influences his thinking, but I thought it was a mistake. The way it was handled, of course, uh, was not a great manifestation of American strength and leadership. I think Biden's handling of Ukraine and Russia has been extraordinarily strong. He has mobilized a unified response across the Atlantic with all of our allies. It's not easy to do threatening the most uh, crippling sanctions against Russia if they move uh, further into Ukraine. We have a common diplomatic message. Uh, Russia has tried to create wedges to find some daylight between the United States and Europe, and they've failed to do so. I think President Biden's moves have been uniformly good from the start of this crisis, and I'm hopeful that uh, they're having an impact. And over the weekend, President Biden spoke to Vladimir Putin over the phone. And as much as I would have loved to listen in on that phone call, the White House readout of the conversation didn't really include any surprises. According to the White House, Biden promised severe sanctions on Russia if the crisis in Ukraine escalates more. And Putin, again, denied that he had any imminent plans to invade. Given the fundamental differences between uh, President Biden and Putin, does it seem possible for talks between the two of them to result in a diplomatic solution here? Diplomatic solution will result from American actions. It will result from the United States, our NATO allies, the European Union, delivering a clear message to Putin that uh, if he invades Ukraine, there will be all of these consequences. Once that 
clarity is established, then diplomacy, conversations, persuasion can help give Putin a, a face-saving way out of the problem he created for himself. But you know, we should not be naive about the power of diplomacy alone if it's not backed uh, by these demonstrations of American and allied strength uh, to change Putin's uh, calculations. Biden knows that obviously that sanctions on Russia won't come without a potentially high price. President Biden warns that harsh sanctions on Russia could have significant blowback on the U.S. economy, including possible price hikes and disruption to the nation's energy supply. President Biden has said, I will not pretend this will be painless. So do you think voters on the whole will blame Russia for any rise we might see in oil prices? Or do you worry that voters will blame those high prices on Biden and the Democratic Party more broadly, which could have repercussions for the midterms? I think voters want to see the president of the United States stand up strongly in the world against this kind of aggression. I think they understand that this is a problem that a dictator named Vladimir Putin created. Uh, I don't think weakness in the face of that kind of aggression is something that voters want to see in their president. So I, I, I think Biden is doing the right thing for the country, but also politically. Uh, I think he was absolutely right to be transparent and honest uh, with Americans that this could come back to us, that we might feel some of the consequences as well. But you know what? That's also an argument for beyond this immediate crisis for the United States to break its dependence on fossil fuels, because our dependence on fossil fuels also gives power to countries like Russia, to countries like Iran, to countries like Saudi Arabia, to blackmail us. And I think this is another wake-up call, not just for the United States, but for our European allies, that we, we have to break this Russian energy blackmail and move towards clean energy good for the planet, but also good for our national security. Do you have any concern that uh, voters won't see it the same way that you do? Do you think that they will see those high prices as a sort of necessary sacrifice for uh, protecting Ukraine's sovereignty? It's not about protecting just Ukraine's sovereignty. It's important to know. And I think most Americans understand that. My first question in, in matters that involve national security, the safety of our country is, what is the right thing to do to protect our interests and to protect Americans? I also happen to think that voters will reward leaders who put the country's interest first, rather than framing every question in terms of political expediency. And, you know, I do talk to voters in my district about this all the time. I had a town hall meeting just on Ukraine a few days ago. I had a couple of hundred people come and I didn't hear too many people say, you know, this doesn't matter to us. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very confident that uh, our interest as a country and the politics align very clearly. Congressman, you spoke recently about how voters in your New Jersey district were getting in contact to say they actually wanted the Biden administration to back Russia in this crisis. That seems to be because uh, Tucker Carlson, the famous or infamous, depending on your view, uh, Fox News host, had made that argument on his show. So what was his rationale for backing Russia? And how have you responded to those voters who have come to you with those views? It's not a lot of people, I'm the overwhelming majority of voters. And to be fair to my Republican colleagues, the overwhelming majority of elected Republicans in this country are completely aligned with the administration in terms of 
the need to support Ukraine and oppose Russian aggression. But there is this um, movement bubbling up from the base of the Republican Party, influenced by people like Tucker Carlson, also you know, social media influencers, I guess, to some extent, the, the former president himself, uh, that uh, has always asked, you know, why are we in Europe? Why, why, why should we care about NATO? Why, why can't we just pull our troops back? Some of them admire Putin. They see him as the kind of strong, in their view, strong leader who doesn't have to care about a free press, doesn't have to care about free elections that they wanted Trump to be uh, in, in the four years that Trump was in the White House. Uh, it's a fundamentally different set of values than the values that have governed this country under both Republican and Democratic administrations ever since the Second World War. It is not dominant right now, but it's something that responsible Republican elected leaders need to confront head on. I think that's a fair point that this is a small minority right now. But given how influential former President Trump can be with his core base of uh, supporters, do you worry that that message could spread farther and become a, a more dominant force in this conversation? Yes, I do. Uh, and that's why I highlighted that this was happening. And I'm happy that a number of prominent Republicans have come out and uh, challenged the Tucker Carlson Putin worldview, I think, unfortunately, they're going to have to keep on doing it. What do you see as the ultimate endpoint to the situation? We still don't know what Putin's going to do. But I think the last few days have given me cautious hope that in the face of a very strong response from the Biden administration, a unified NATO alliance, a unified US Congress, that Putin is going to take some of his tanks uh, and go home. The crisis does not end. There will still be hybrid warfare and cyber attacks and energy blackmail under that set of circumstances. But I think if that happens, we will be able to say the United States did the right thing. If that happens, I think we can take some pride in it. Uh, if not, and Putin still does this crazy thing, then I think we got to take that unity and strength and ensure that uh, his regime in Russia pays a very significant price, that they come out of this weaker and that the United States and our allies come out stronger and more united. Congressman, we always ask a what else question on our podcast. So shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you about a recent comment that one of your Democratic colleagues made. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that Republican-led pressure on political systems is so great that there is a very real risk democracy as we know it will cease to exist in the U.S. within a decade. Do you share her concern? I think democracy is fragile everywhere. I think it's always been fragile. We, we've kind of taken it for granted in the United States. And, but I, I see the positive side of, of this uh, political crisis we've been experiencing. I think that some of the least responsible citizens in America have sparked a rebirth of responsible citizenship in our country. More people are voting, more people are running for office, more people are volunteering, more people are coming to congressional town halls and expressing their views. We have a high level of political and civic participation that I think will help us overcome this crisis and, and show once again that there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed by what's right with America. Congressman Tom Malinowski, thank you so much for joining the podcast this week. Thank you very much. And that's all from me this week. 
Next week, Jonathan Friedland will be back hosting his new podcast, Politics Weekly America. It will still go out on Fridays, and it will continue to feature amazing guests. Where you, our wonderful listeners, can go to find inside analysis of the latest news from Washington and beyond. But you'll need to subscribe to its new feed. So make sure to search for Politics Weekly America on The Guardian website and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But for me, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. And I'm Joni Grieve. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Thank you.